Hey, everybody. This is David Kern. Welcome to Close Reads. Before I kick it over to the show, I want to make a quick announcement. We're excited to announce not one but two scholarships to our upcoming Searcy Summer Institute, which takes place June 3rd through the 8th at the Chateau Resort near Blowing Rock, North Carolina. Um, this year, we're going to be spending a week discussing Shakespeare's play Hamlet. Uh, it's open to 15 people. And our partners at IEW and Classical Academic Press are uh, helping us offer two scholarships to, to this event. We know it's a bit more of an expensive event, just given the nature of it. So we want to make it possible for more people to be able to come. So uh, thanks to IEW and thanks to Classical Academic Press, we're going to be able to do that. IEW, if you don't know about them, well, you really should. You can head over to IEW.com slash start to learn about them. They provide teachers and teaching parents with methods, materials, and resources, which will aid them in training students to become better listeners, speakers, readers, writers, thinkers, and listeners. To learn more about IEW and their lifetime 100% money-back guarantee, again, you can head over to IEW.com slash visit. And our friends over at Classical Academic Press are offering Classical U. Head over to classicalu.com to learn more about them if you're looking to become a better classical educator or to deepen your understanding of classical education. At Classical U, CAP brings you over 25 courses to guide you. Master classical educators from all over the nation instruct Classical U courses so you can study with true mentors all at your own pace. You can preview any of the courses for free and the subscription is just less than $20 a month. That subscription includes downloadable resources, curriculum guides for schools and co-ops, as well as a brand new forum to discuss specific course content or general education topics. You'll also have access to the resources through the Classical U app. So if you desire to increase your classical education knowledge or become a better educator, Classical U can help you. And again, that's visit, uh, visit classicalu.com to enjoy all of those free previews or to subscribe. IEW and CAP have been longtime partners with us, and we, uh, we we are so grateful for their friendship and for their support. And um, we are very thankful that, thanks to them, these scholarships are going to be available. If you want to throw your hat in the ring, so to speak, uh, for these scholarships, shoot me an email at david at com and describe uh, briefly why you should be awarded one of these two seats. Submissions are due Friday, May 11th. That's Friday, May 11th is the last day for submissions, and the winner will be announced on Monday, May 14th. Thanks again to CAP and IEW for making these seats possible. Again, it's classicalu.com and IEW.com slash start to learn more about their programs. All right, let's get you over to this week's episode of Close Reads. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. We are here to talk about P.G. Woodhouse once more. The we that I refer to is Angelina Stanford, Tim McIntosh, and myself. And I'm David Kern. Angelina, Tim, how's it going? (laughs) (laughs) So glad terrifically so glad to be here with you (laughs) okay in my defense i was trying to think of some witty woodhousian response and then i just totally drew a blank (laughs) you were sitting here thinking i can be funny i can i can't be funny that's pretty much it that's pretty much it i like how your 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 excuse was just I don't know. I'm not that funny. Uh, Angelina, Tim, <laughs> what about you? What was your excuse that for just like the complete silence, the, 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 the tension and, and the, uh, the, the terror of that moment? I was actually defaulting to Angelina. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> you were trying to be a gentleman. 
I, would, I usually just blurt out, I'm doing great. Uh, just, yeah, remixing with, you know, whatever. But I was trying to default to Angelina. Great. Okay. So, sorry. I, assume... I was trying to default to PG Woodhouse. It was just, you know, avalanche of defaulting. Well, this is the lesson that we have all learned. Do not default to anyone else. And I'm going to take that lesson to heart for the rest of this show. Um, <laughs> Tim, are you, I assume given that you just introduced this new character, um, that you're going to be in character for the rest of today? I am. Uh, this is the last time you're going to actually hear my authentic voice. So okay. enjoy you should, it while you Americans can. Do, Americans do not come out looking good in, in the different Woodhousian books. So you just go for it. You just give us a crash American. We, we need to know, though, before you go into your performance... We need to know more right. about some of the choices that you're making. Like, um, what informed that you're like, where does this character come from that you're doing? It sounds to me like, um, New Hampshire, uh, 1920, living out yep. in a cabin, um, probably gets in a fight with a dog every three weeks, a yeah. bear, you know, um, the dog, well, you being got the all dog that, that you from knew, that voice, the dog that you. The dog that you fight with being the dog that you also use to fight off the bears every week. Yep. Um, yep. You snowshoe really... for exercise. Yes. Gosh. Take your wow. own beef jerky. Yep. And what's really like reassuring about this, David, is that when I was kind of doing my preparations for the character, all of the things you just mentioned were kind of part of the glossary that I was trying to incorporate. Mm -hmm. So I feel really good about the voice that I did, that it conveyed those those kind of grainy facts about my character so I well. will say that the weird thing about this though is that him being 17 feels a little bit off it feels mm. a little bit off given the rest of this what mm. i'm most impressed with is the way that tim has managed to capture the american version of the woodhousian spirit mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah mm. yeah it's an act of double reflection yeah just uh. nailed it nailed it yeah yeah Instead um, of a manservant, though, you more like have like a, a gas station attendant that hangs around. <laughs> have you? Okay, for real though, when we're talking about how Americans are represented represented in British literature, it, it's almost always this sort of swashbuckling Texan. Even um, Murder on the That's Orient right. Express, the murderer—I forget remember the character's name—is just this big you know, reckless. I don't know that he was an oil baron, but he at least kind of comes across as an oil baron. And I get the same impression about Woodhouse that like, yeah, we're just all these kind of Texans with like dinner plate sized belt buckles. <laughs> well, it makes sense though. There's a, there's a, there's a long history of the British treating us like the nouveau riche. So you see a lot of those types of characters, you know, big money, no class, that kind of stereotype. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> But do all of us have to talk with those huge yawning syllables like all Texans do? <laughs> Watch it, Tim. Don't go insulting Texas. We have a lot of Texas listeners, and they love And we love it our is, Texas listeners. We love you all. When it was coming out of my mouth, do we? I was thinking of... I was, <laughs> Don't mess with Texas, Tim. <laughs> we, we mentioned on this show almost a year ago about me... Uh, having my my think my toenails painted red when I was poolside at the Austin conference and the women who who came to my assistance by providing me toenail polish remover I believe were all I don't believe they were all Texans 
And I just grossly offended all of them. Well, that's the last time you're going to get an on-the-spot pedicure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> David, steer us away from this. Well, but I mean, I assume he gets subject. an on-the-spot. I assume he gets getting on-the-spot pedicures regularly. Just they're not happening in Texas. Okay, can uh, I tell you guys something? I I got my first. Okay, let's. Can. This wow. being the transition, you're I have to go full Bertie Wooster on us, aren't you? I I think I am. <laughs> When I about a month ago, my sister and I were we were working together in Sea Island, Georgia, and we kind of like we finished the work on a Saturday. We had Saturday afternoon off, and she was like, "I kind of feel like getting a a pedicure." And I was like, "You know, I've never had a pedicure, but I've always wanted one because apparently Michael Jordan used to get them once a week, if not twice a week." And anything that Michael so that Jordan was does still. Okay. Yeah. Was, I was really wondering how he was going to somehow make this like Ernest Hemingway type. Pedic- yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's how you they did not disappoint. It came back. <laughs> Michael Jordan instead of Ernest Hemingway. And I got my first ever <laughs> pedicure in Sea Island, Georgia. My sister was in one recliner. I was in the other. And I found it, except for some of the sharp tools beneath the toenails, a thoroughly enjoyable experience. Did they give you the calf massage? That is nice. Yeah, that was... The sharp tools beneath the toenails thing is probably kind of like how when you go to the dentist, like, you know, when they're poking your gums and all that, like it's just, it's uncomfortable, but the less frequently you go or the more infrequently you go, the worse it is. So when you allow all that gunk to build up onto your toenails, I, I'm yeah. guessing that they have to use the larger tools, like in Dumb and Dumber, when they have to use the chainsaw to ch- cut his actual toes off or his toenails yeah. off. I am yeah. just sitting here imagining what the blurb on iTunes is going to be for this episode. It's going to be like, in which David and Tim discuss mm-hmm. the finer points of pedicures. <laughs> or the not so fine points of pedicures, the kind of chiseled points of pedicures. Yeah, pedicure. I was going to say, let's let's be careful about exactly which word, you know, which metaphor we're using here for this conversation. But... <laughs> Bernie um, Wooster would no doubt enjoy a pedicure. <laughs> I feel like we might be putting off the real reason we're here for this show. Uh, we are here to answer listener questions about... Uh, about pedicures. <laughs> Go to the Woosters. Um, and this is the episode when everyone freaks out because no one knows the answer to the questions. So we just kind of wing it for a while and then we post it and then we forget about it till the next time. Um, just kidding. We take your questions very seriously, especially about this book. Too seriously. That's why we're stressed out. <laughs> um, so I we need to pull up a Wikipedia page while we do this episode. I think. <laughs> well, that's just what I do. All, all, all episodes. Um, we so there are several questions we posted. Um, some, some I think a couple threads got posted on the uh, Facebook page. Um, and we are recording this on Tuesday, May eighth. So it's a few days before. So if, we, if your question doesn't show up here, it might just be that we. Had to record a little early this week and could not get to it. So hopefully um, there'll be some conversation about your questions that did not get answered or that do not get answered, I suppose, would be the more appropriate verb. Um, uh, hopefully that, com- that conversation will happen on the Facebook page and um, we'll try to chime in where possible if necessary. Um, we did get an opinion to start the, the list of questions though. And Jonathan Jones um, states that we should do one Woodhouse every year, maybe after a serious read. And um, I, I think that might be a good idea. I think we might have to do maybe a spring Woodhouse oh, I'd be tradition. For that. Uh, okay, I hear you. I'm uh-oh. Uh-oh. open to that possibility. I am soft of heart, and um, I just want to say, just say oh, it, man. No. Oh no, there are some other funny writers in the English language. 
Like, what if we did a what if you did a Roddy Doyle? Roddy Doyle, the language can be a little bit harsh sometimes. But like Roddy Doyle is a great Irish, incredibly funny novelist. Yeah, but then you have to know how to speak Irish. Oh, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> the translation can be a little bit tricky. So much of it depends on the translator. <laughs> as always, as always. Um, well, hey, hey, I'm not against discussing other funny writers. I also think we should do a Mark Twain at some point. And Mark Twain can be, um, even yes. in serious moments, quite funny. Um, anyway, Jonathan and Tim, will let you fight that out sometime. You know, um, we'll see which of you is stronger at pool or something billiards shall i say um let's jump into some questions here um and thanks to everyone who has submitted the question so we've got we've got jonathan's opinion out of the way followed up by tim's opinion about jonathan's opinion Uh, (laughs) and we'll angelina and i will keep our opinions about tim's opinion about jonathan's opinion to ourselves until we're off the air talking about tim i'm switzerland Then I'll turn into America when you when you press off, <laughs> <laughs> just like America right does. Home. Okay, so um, no wonder we all are uh, Texans with the, cell, the belt buckles the size of plates. Um, Jenny Lee uh, asks: Assuming Bernie went through the best of the best in education, why is he so clueless? Where did things go wrong in his education? And someone responded, uh, Jeanette responded, he's a gentleman and spends most of his time with the drones club, <laughs> which might be the answer. <laughs> so where did things go wrong for Bernie Wooster? Okay, so I always just thought he's dumb as dirt. But? Uh, no, that's what I thought. Oh, that's, that's, that's my own, whole oh, answer. You, you kind of like, I, that felt like it was prefatory. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, I just, you know, centuries of inbreeding, that joke about the aristocracy, uh, you know, that they just get dumber and dumber the further along the genealogy you go hmm. so it's like the the it's like the old joke like there's one million people with two last names exactly but they're yeah. all dumb you know all of his friends but Bertie's the smart one <laughs> <laughs> tim do you think there's more to it than that what if he you think there's more to it than inbreeding <laughs> <laughs> what if Bertie is I mean, I think his flaw more than anything else, it might be stupidity. It might also be cowardice. The fact that he reflects upon the misadventures of this weekend with such fear and trembling is evidence to me that he's never really faced like hard times in any way in his life. You know, yeah, like this the is hardest... the most difficult thing. Yeah. 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 What right. Are you I mean... saying? Bernie knows how to keep the chin up. Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> He keeps the chin up when he's like tipping a glass back into it. That's the only time really that he's like keeping his chin up. Woo! Tim's on fire today. Shots fired at Texas, shot fired at England. Here we go. Bam, bam. What else? The 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 only time that that Bernie Wooster's ever had to uh put up with any kind of difficulty was when his great 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 grandfather fought in 1066. Yeah. For for William the Conqueror. Right. Yeah, so I you think, think that- he's, I think he's, uh, I think he's cowardly and, um, you know, like when he's facing uh, an obstacle of any sort of size, he goes into fight, flight, or freeze mode so quickly. And the person who's actually faced, you know, difficulties in his life, Jeeves, because he's going to always be at the ready at this, of this fool man. 
he's had enough kind of contact with the immobility of the physical world that Jesus is the one that comes up with the answers because hmm. he's not a coward. He's like actually had like forced to face into these problems. And so he's developed a knack for it. Yeah. So he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Developed a knack for because of the experience. Yeah. He has, yeah. Practice. He has practice and birdie doesn't. Exactly. Right. So it's, it's, um, so you, is it, so you don't blame it on an intellect, a lack of intellectual prowess, like maybe Angelina is saying so much as a, um, that he doesn't have the experience. He hasn't had the demands put on him. Um, that someone who doesn't have everything handed to them might have. Right. Hit. Yeah. Right. I mean, I told Angelie's absolutely right. He's, you know, dumb as dirt. He's dumb as dirt. He's, <laughs> I was fishing for dumb as a brick and I started to compound the bricks, dumb as a pile of bricks, dumb <laughs> as a series of sticks. But no, I, I think what came first is just, the, I don't think rhyming helps make your point. Any, any no, way. it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> I, would I think agree the, that Birdie's never been pushed. I mean, you know, it, it's such a fine line between genetics and, you know, the nature nurture debate. So I would also agree that Birdie has never been pushed. I'm, what's the award that he won in elementary school that he references so many times in the stories? Like he won the Bible memorization award or he won some kind of Bible award in elementary school, remember? And he, that was like the high watermark of his achievements. <laughs> you know, so last time he really accomplished something and he references it so many times. And that's why it's so funny because, you know, this is elementary school award. <laughs> All right, let's 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 work through some more questions here. Uh, Bethany Cohen asks, uh, "What is with the whole fly in the eye thing between Gussie <laughs> and Stiffy?" Um, sh- and she she goes on, um, and the scene later where he is basically <laughs> she puts this in quotations, basically feeling her up. Sorry, I don't have the book with me at the moment to quote how Woodhouse put it to see if she was concealing the notebook in her stocking. Stiffy never makes an objection to this awkward invasion of personal space. So I really thought that it was going to be revealed that Gussie and Stiffy secretly had a thing between them, but there's no further indication that that such was actually the case. So is this just intended to highlight Gussie's extreme social ineptness? But why didn't Stephanie object? She should have slapped him. So what is the whole fly? That is not consistent with her character at all. (laughs) She would not have slapped him. What would she have done? So why why not? I don't know that Stiffy has a real sense of boundaries at all. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) she's all up in Bernie's business. And um, in some ways, the people, maybe one one thing is sometimes people who don't have a sense of boundaries take most offense by people who don't have a sense of boundaries. Well, that's true. But I think she also enjoyed tormenting Gussie a bit over the, Mm. notebook you know so it would probably right, have been right. like go ahead search me because she had said the same thing about oh i knew you'd search my room you know she's very just well not non-plus since that actually means excited so she's very plussed yeah <laughs> do, do you um i mean so so her are you saying that she's kind of egging it on yeah oh yes so she's yes. like egging on this like this sort of um, she's got I think that she enjoys having the upper hand anytime that she she gets it right but she she toys with birdie about it and then this whole oh I just put it in the cow creamer I mean that was a very that was a really careless and uh she's just very she, flippant so, and self-focused so is she careless or, or in that or is she, is she making a mistake there or is she actively trying to kind of push Gussie and and birdie's 
buttons, so to speak. Oh, I think she enjoys pushing their buttons. She enjoys having the upper hand even when she's being groped. <laughs> that was um, attempt at a like the way that they portrayed <laughs> it in the in the TV version, it wasn't it wasn't super gropey. You know, we have to remember, I think, that the lines of uh, inappropriate gesture right. would have been a little different in the 1930s than than now. So, I mean, it's not like he's got her skirt lifted up and doing a police pat down. It was just more that he was very close to her and in a kind of, you know, intimate appearance in how close they were. And mm. um, It's interesting to compare... <clears throat> to compare the stiffy and um uh why am i trying a blank in this the exact one bassett no um the the other um gussie's fiance yeah madeline. bassett yeah yeah madeline yeah madeline bassett. yeah yeah it's interesting um to compare the two of them and how they interact with the men around them because oh, it is um, you're right because stiffy is so um sort of would you say would you say she's flighty or is she? Um, I think the bird's kind of flighty. Is she, They're all kind of flighty, though. Yeah, but but Madeline, although maybe it's because she's in the book a little bit less. Oh, well, I don't, actually don't know that like line like as far as per line. Um, but like we get we get the version of Madeline through Birdie's totally through Birdie's perspective of her. She doesn't really reveal. We don't get a lot. Uh, revealed about her through her actions. Um, no, you're most, right. She's, a, she's through, a bigger like, deal in some of the other stories. Right. It's mostly through Birdie's sort of perspective of her, whereas Stiffy is kind of an active character with agency. Um, and so um, she, in some ways, he, the way he views Stiffy as sort of like this silly girl and he views um, uh, Madeline as like this threat. He As like a real terror. Um, and it's because he's trying to avoid ending up married to her, <laughs> and at all costs, he doesn't care. He doesn't. He definitely doesn't care if his friend has to marry the, marry the, uh, the, the, the uh, terrible woman right here. But he's certainly not going to not going to let himself get married to her. And that's the like. In the end, he re- all he really cares about is that he doesn't have to marry uh, Madeline Bassett. Um, and so I like the idea of contrasting them, though. Madeline is um, very romantic, very idealistic, and Stiffy's more, you know, pragmatic and plotting. And, um, you know, Madeline would have never blackmailed someone to get her way in a relationship. Well, no, that she would have bullied them. But, but see, but she doesn't, I don't think she sees it. I mean, okay, so the whole thing with Birdie and Madeline starts, you know, several stories earlier with a legitimate misunderstanding because Birdie doesn't understand all this poetry she's quoting to him. And so she thinks he's responded in this way that they're on the same page, but he's just too stupid to figure that out. And then he's too polite to correct her that there's been some kind of misunderstanding. So she doesn't think she's bullying him. So the whole thing that goes through the thread in this story is that, you know, when he shows up, she's like, oh, Birdie, is this wise? I can't imagine the pain you must be in to be around me when I've rejected you. And so when she comes back and, and says, okay, I'll marry you. I, I'm, I still love Gussie, but I think in time I could probably love you. So I'll do you this favor. I, she really believes that because she's so detached from reality. She's caught up in her romantic fantasy that she thinks Birdie's in love with her. But Stiffy is much more pra- <laughs> practical. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I ever would have thought of her as being practical, but she is. Would you say she's more cunning? Cunning. That's the good word. Yeah. Looks like pragmatic in how she'll achieve her ends. Like, I want to marry Stinker Pinker. So let's plan a fake crime. Let's bloody some noses. Let's, you know, she is flighty because she forgets to tell him the plan's off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So uh, next question. Emily, well, Emily asks, can we discuss more about Woodhouse's lampooning of fascism in light of his later imprisonment and then involvement in Nazi broadcasting? Which Christie then follows up by saying, yes, that was a huge controversy. Although the broadcasts were apolitical, there was talk of prosecution and he never returned to England. Is this something you guys would like to talk about? I, I know nothing. I would be loved to hear you guys talk about it. I don't know anything about this. I only know a tiny little bit, and namely that that's what happened. He was forced to do uh, propaganda radio, right? Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know all the story behind he, well, it. He was okay. Wait, I'm trying to remember. He was living in France. So right who is getting Wikipedia? You need a Wikipedia real quick. <laughs> okay, yeah, because I, I I'm, I'm very fuzzy on the details, but I'm, yeah. I think he was living in France and then it became German occupied in World right. War II. Now, so the answer to the question is: Can we discuss more about this? Um, yes, by all means, you may discuss this as much as you want on the Facebook page. <laughs> I was going to say, can <laughs> as in, am I able? No, I am not able. <laughs> but we don't know a lot about this. And it personally doesn't really affect the way I feel about this. Right. It was never something I was too terribly interested in, other than other than to note that it was interesting that he um, satirizes fascism and then another book, Socialism and Communism. Yeah, there's not a lot of different isms that he doesn't lampoon in some way. You know, he, he, he takes the shots at all these different... Um, all the different elements of, of British culture at the time. It's not like he was um, lampooning just fascism. And then later on, you know, decided he was going to, you know, not start like he was, he wasn't picking sides very much. Um, he lampoons himself. In fact, um, his own sort of reputation and personality and the way he lived and all that all get lampooned in his work largely through, through Bertie himself um, and some of the other, uh, similar characters so i his um he didn't he, he didn't like pick and choose i don't believe so it never really made me feel like i needed to it was needed to affect the way we read the books very much yeah okay. same um anyway <laughs> so by but by all means have at it on the facebook page but that's about I don't know that we know enough about it to do say anything. We yeah. can pretend. You guys want to pretend? You want to just make up stories? And, <laughs> um, the pre-Nazi versus the post-Nazi years, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> are a little That's bit as much like, as I've got. Somebody's got to fill in the rest. They're a little bit like a fine Bordeaux. You know? <laughs> Sack. That's exactly what comes to mind. Right, exactly. Um Carried to you on a tray, um, on a warm summer evening when the breeze is—I don't know. Um, so anyway, uh, April. We're trying David. so hard to be Woodhouseian, but we're just failing here. <laughs> I was just making stuff up as I go along. For, uh, for my sake, what Tim? I was going to say, for your sake, I wonder if we should consider another question. Yeah, that might be a good <laughs> idea. Um, so April wants to know: Is Jeeves? 
serendipitous or a genius? His advice often makes things worse before it all works out in the end. Is he playing 3D chess or is he just lucky? <laughs> I like that question. I wonder this all the time. My question is, does it matter? I yeah, think that Jeeves is supposed to be smarter. Not a 3D genius, Angelina. Just, just like no, a couple think, steps ahead. I, I, no, I think, but... So, like, when something goes wrong, does he know it's going to go wrong? In a lot of the stories, he predicts it, and that's part of it. That's how he hinges it, is that he assumes it'll go wrong. A lot of, in a lot of the stories, Birdie's not in on the full plan, you remember? Right, oh, um, yeah, yeah. And, Birdie, and that's how he gets Birdie to play just the right part, is that he doesn't tell him... <laughs> what he's supposed to do he just knows how birdie's going to respond in the scenario so a lot of times it looks like it's gotten worse before it's gotten better but it turns out that that was all part of the plan but there are sometimes things that he can't anticipate but then he he's so quick in the moment right. he'll come up with another plan immediately yeah <clears throat> i think i think the other part of it is that woodhouse likes to play with the idea that like what makes him smart is his ability to to react when things don't go perfectly. Hmm. So like he has a plan and he'll try to give Birdie or whoever it is, Gussie or whatever character it is that needs the solution. He'll try to offer a solution to help them. And maybe it works partly, but then some, some little snag comes up. Um, and even if he didn't predict that, he's usually able to offer a new piece of advice to help resolve those kind of threads that are left unresolved. And his ability to do that quickly is what is fun to read as a reader, but also what is so remarkable and stands out to Birdie and the other characters. Like, mm. it's not that he mm -hmm. can sit there and plot for long periods of time and come up with this issue. It's that, or come up with a solution. It's how he can solve something quickly in the moment that makes Birdie always talk about the size of his brain and then he must eat a lot of fish. It's the like those matter, rapid, yes. it's the rapid adjustments on the fly that makes, that makes Jeeves um, a, 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 such a smart character but also which makes him so fun to read because yeah. in the moment you're like okay what's he gonna do what's he gonna do mm -hmm. and it's not like then they go off and have tea and then they go ride horses and they go for a fox hunt and then they come back and jeeves has drawn up a plan on a whiteboard he just right then and there he can figure out the next thing to do to help bring us to a sort of resolution it's 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 sort of like when a storyteller takes you through a series of twists and turns until all of a sudden you're like ah look at that look what they just did there that was fun yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. And I love too how his solutions are pretty much always, if not always, rooted in an understanding of human nature and of that particular person and how they would respond. So a lot of times he can really manipulate the outcome because he knows the people so well. Who's going to feel easily threatened? Who's going to be jealous and react this way? Uh, and, he, and so he's able to work with all of that with knowing who the people are, yeah. which is always so interesting. And a lot of times, too, he has his own agenda, which is not the same as Birdie's. That, that's true. Like, for example, he wants to go on his cruise. Mm -hmm. um, okay, Erin wants to know. She calls us fearless hosts, which... Um, I Today we are very fearful. I am. I'll speak for myself. Today we, I'm a fearful host. <laughs> I think we should probably definitely keep calling ourselves fearless hosts, though. Are you allowed to call yourself that? I'm probably not. Um, why don't we just call each other that? Then we won't feel bad calling ourselves that. There we go. Um, Fearless host Tim, what percentage of the literary illusions in this book would you say you pick up on? Just wondering what is a reasonable goal for me to aspire to? This person mentions that she's only listened to the first podcast, so apologies if this was already discussed. And apologies for ending two sentences with prepositions. Chiefs would be appalled. Uh, so, uh, I can't work under these David. circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> yes, fearless host Tim, 
that's a difficult thing to calculate considering if I don't know if I'm getting the literary illusion. <laughs> well, there's I sometimes get 100% obvious of ones. the ones I recognized. Boom, nailed it. <laughs> I know less than half of them, half as much as I would like. And I like less than half of them, half as much as they deserve. I, I did not get, I did not know the uh, allusion to the God is in his poem allusion, except for, I know that last line, God is in his poem. I mean, God is in his poem. God is in his heaven. Um, I, you know, I'd heard that phrase before, but I didn't know it well enough to say who the author was or anything like that. I think I got most of the, if not all of the Shakespeare references, because most of them came from Hamlet. I think there was a couple, a few sprinkled in from Macbeth. Uh, I got no way of calculating that because there's clearly a ton that just zipped right on by me. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you'll know that you didn't get it and you'll be like, like particularly if it's in French. Yeah, right, right. Then you'll yeah, just the French out. ones, I was struck out on all the French ones. And there's absolutely no way I'm going to actually read close enough to look any of that kind of stuff up on the internet. Yeah, right. Um, Angelina, do you have a way of tracking <laughs> things like that that you... Like where you do you write down things that you don't recognize and go back and look at them later? Do you stop reading and look them up? Or do you just no. kind of wait to see if they get wrapped oh, no. in again? Or you just try to... You just keep going? I just keep going. I'm so glad you said that. Because we're going to keep going, going right now. <laughs> I, I keep going. Say- you know, I, okay, so I tend to, okay, I'm going to say something rather controversial. What? Because I, it goes against the wisdom of the day in terms of what people say you have to do about teaching. But I'm just going to tell the truth about how I read and then the chips fall where they may. Ready? I never under any circumstances stop and look up what a word means. Ever. I never have my entire life. I always can figure out what it means from the context. And then along, and of course, all the the teaching wisdom is that you're supposed to teach your students to, you know, underline words they don't know and to stop and look it up. And they'll have vocabulary sheets that go with chapters. And I just think if someone had made me do that, I would have never read another book. Like that just kills it for me to -hmm. think that I have to sit there and define all these words. So a long time after keeping this, my dirty, dark secret that I don't look up words in books, despite the fact that everyone says, you know, like, this is like rule number one. When you get to a word you don't know, look it up. Um, I read an article where Tolkien said, and this is a guy who worked on the OED. He (laughs) said he did not, he doesn't look up words either. And he thinks being able to tell the meaning from the context is a better way to learn them than looking up the dictionary definition. I I do think that that is, that's actually reading. Um, When, if you don't know something, you learn, you learn, more about how language and writing and all that works by f- sorting through the context, sorting through the sentence itself. Like that's actually reading. It's not reading to look something up, if that makes sense. It does. To me, it would totally destroy the flow. But of- and I, I, you, I see, I don't look anything up either. So I'm right there with you. Like I might mark something if I'm like, that is an interesting word. I would like to know what that is. I'll highlight it or circle it or just like maybe write it down somewhere and be like, maybe I'll look at, look it up later if I can't figure it out from the context or if it's a word I really like and I want to remember to use it someday. <laughs> um, but I think that the, it goes even beyond like the flow and the experience of reading, but like the skill of reading itself. Mm-hmm. It goes beyond just like decoding what letters and words mean. It's about understanding like how words work in conjunction and context with one another. And so when you learn to read, like learn what words mean 
through the context, you're learning to be a better reader than you are if you stop to look things up. Then it becomes, then you're just decoding on a higher level. You're not really reading closely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, that's my And I opinion. do the same thing in terms of vocabulary acquisition. Like I really despised all the vocabulary classes we had to take in school. I did not find that that ever taught me a word, but I can't tell, and I, I know y'all have the same experience because y'all are lifelong readers. I can't tell you how often I use a word and I know I'm using it right because I've read yeah. it in the same context a million times. But if someone stopped me and said, what does that word mean? I would probably totally. give them the in the headlights look, right? What did you, Tim, when you, like, when you're teaching, well, I mean, I don't know, performance sometimes is different because you have to, uh, you have to understand it differently, like when you're teaching theater. Yeah. But when you're teaching literature, um, even with college students, what yeah. was your approach? Or, or when you find a word you don't know, are, are you a stop? Do you stop and look it up just because you're curious? I don't recall ever touching on the subject, but I, I'm kind of like Angelina and you are, it sounds like, with one, maybe I'm a little bit more like David in that, if there's a word that I see, I usually can figure it out by context. But if I really like the sound that I think it makes, you know, like I would really like to have that word in my vocabulary, I put a little bitty X next to it and I'll either look it up and write the definition in the margin or I'll go back and get the definition later. I wouldn't necessarily have a problem with that. Like you, you don't teach a lot of elementary school, Tim. So I'll clue you in on some of the wisdom and, and also I'm using wisdom in quotes. Like if you buy one of these dreadful literature guides for books, which are dreadful and no one should ever buy those. Um, the kind I'm talking about, obviously I know Cersei has literature guides. As far as I know, when I've looked at them, they were not put together like this, but a typical <laughs> literature guide for a book starts off with a list of vocabulary words that you're going to encounter in the chapter you are about to read. And step one is that they make the kids define them. And the idea is now when I encounter this word, I will know what this means, except that's poppy cop. Cause even if I did that, I would never remember <laughs> when I started yeah. reading the chapter. You know what's so interesting about that? I mean, here's what's interesting about that. Meaning is contextual. Exactly. And so to like to pluck the word out of its context and to attach the meaning to it from a dictionary, presumably, you're it, man, you're kind of um, hamstringing the student. That that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like students, I mean, like. If they're smart enough to have this book, to have this word as part of the context of their reading, they're probably smart enough to figure the word out 50% of the time. Let them worry about defining it later on. That seems to kind of like violate what I think is the one of the fundamental principles of meaning is that you always convey meaning through the context. What does the whale mean? Well, it depends on if it's in the ocean or in the pages of Moby Dick. The meaning is different. The Close Reads episode in which we throw <laughs> literature guides under the bus. That's what the description is going to be. David, don't you... I mean, no, no, I'm, I'm... I agree. No, I agree, yeah. I, I think that one of the things people will run into with younger students, though, is the frustration that young readers can experience sometimes. Maybe, especially, the, say, let's, shall we say, the less readerly among them will run into the frustration of running into words repeatedly that they don't know the meaning of, and then when it happens too often, it becomes, um, it becomes a, something to overcome and it becomes a challenge that can, can dissuade kids from enjoying reading. Okay. Um, that, now that makes sense, but it, that does. having just done that this week, I mean, I assigned something 
to my students that was just a little bit beyond their grasp. It's supposed to be a touch beyond their grasp, but this was too far beyond their grasp. And I just did this. The problem, as I see it, or the solution is not a vocabulary guide. The solution is reading material that is that is closer to their ability. Well, yeah, maybe. Uh, okay, so can I push back slightly on that? Absolutely. Like, I think we. I think that the. I guess it depends what you mean by closer. Like, I'm a big believer in people reading above what people our whole lives should read at least some of what we're of the time way above our own present capabilities. But I think the biggest thing is not necessarily reading. Um, closer to your capabilities, which yes, to some extent, they need to be closer to the closer to their capabilities, right? Within range, we'll put it that way. Still, still but, above their capabilities, but closer. But I think the biggest thing is that's where, like, reading in a community, whether that's a classroom or a family or with your mom or dad, like, that's where those kind of things can be unlocked for you, and that's the value. Yes, of that. that that's what I was thinking. That that. Uh, part of the problem with that, you know, here's a list of vocabulary words approach is that it is presuming something about literature, which we are trying so hard to push back against, which is that it's not a a subject in a class, right? But that it's a whole literary life. And so you're not going to need those kinds of crutches. If you're speaking in a good vocabulary in your home, if you're reading out loud and what, what I have seen with all of my children is that because well, first of all, just, and I'm sure y'all are the same way. I have never spoken dumbed down language to my children ever. Like they were born and they got full long literary sentences. And as soon as they could talk, they talked full long literary sentences and people would notice how remarkable that was. And I was like, but I've trained their ear. It's you what just they have hear to, every day. It's what they hear. And so that's why they talk like this, you know? And so they always had very sophisticated sentence structures and it used to crack me up when I would think, oh, that's some interesting subordinate clauses y'all have all picked up at two and a half. Boom. All right. We're nailing this. Yeah. Um, but So one of the things I've noticed is that reading then becomes the struggle for them was trying to get the right pronunciation, but once they could hear it, then they recognized it. Right. Yeah. Um, And that cuts down on a lot of the problems. So if if you're creating a literary life, a lot of this just takes care of itself. Oh my gosh. Um, Yes. And you have to trust, like, I think, sorry, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you go, David. All I was going to say is I think that, um, you have to, you have to, not be afraid to trust what you're doing. Like, you know, you have mm-hmm. to, like, you should trust that that literature, that literary life, and that the tradition that is great literature is sort of, um, I don't know, efficacious. Is, is that? Yes, right, you, right. That it's going to do the job and that it's not up to you to like fill their head with a specific list of knowledge that's going to like make them good readers. Like, what makes them a good reader is the ongoing participation within the tradition and, and absolutely in that life. And so, and if you, if you have faith in that and you provide good books and a good context in which to experience them, then they're going to become uh, good readers who speak well and read well and write well. Um, exactly. Yeah. And, and sometimes we, in our anxiety, we forget our basic principles that we're trying to live up to. One of which is that we expect that we'll read books again and again and again, and that we're going to have different and richer experiences every time we come back. That means you don't have to get every little thing the first time you yeah. read it. And, yeah. Yeah. and we feel all this anxiety of, no, they got to master this book at 16. No, they do not. They will not. They cannot. If they could, it wouldn't be a great book. Yeah point to come back it's not you mentioned the word we're not talking about subjects here i mean really what we're talking about is arts we're talking about we're not talking about mm-hmm. like filling our yeah. head with knowledge of a subject we're talking about 
uh, discovering and improving within an art and eventually perhaps coming somewhat close to mastery, but like it's an art, you practice it forever and ever and you know, yeah. you'll get better at it. But Tim, you were going to say something though, and you let me go like a, like the gentleman that you are. <laughs> uh, my, my, I was going to make it. my sister and I often make jokes about my dad that are like just in love and affection for the kind of education that we received from him, which was exactly as Angelina just described. It was never like done by drill. It was just done by osmosis of just us being in that man's house. <laughs> the story, if I told you guys the story about my sister wanting to date this guy in high school and my dad's response, maybe I have, it's worth telling again. I don't think my so. sister. I don't remember it. No, my sister, you know, wants to, um, she wants to have a study session with this guy. And my dad asks about this guy and, you know, the report is not exactly a glowing one. You know, it's not, he's not a heroin addict, but he's not the kind of guy that he's dad not hot wants. boxing in your car. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> and, and dad wasn't, doesn't want Carissa. The new listeners are like, what? Yeah. Right. Go back to episode five or whatever it was. So, Carissa says, but dad, it's just a study session. <laughs> and dad says, honey, nothing propinks like propinquity. <laughs> and Carissa was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Did he just leave it at that? <laughs> and yet, message received. Totally, <laughs> message received. And now everyone, I mean, this is like good, like, you can probably, just to, to articulate what we're talking about, everyone can probably, by context, figure out what propinquity means. But it might be a fun one to look up. Nothing propinks like propinquity. And it's just like, it's classic dad. Felt no obligation to explain it. It was absolutely, positively on point. I mean, absolutely on point about like, yeah. If, if I don't like this guy... And you are kind of interested in dating him. And you think there's sort of like a neutral space where you're just going to have a study session with this guy. Sorry, nothing propinks like propinquity. <laughs> it's not going to stop there. You know who else had no shame about their pro propinquity? Who? Gussie Finkdottle. <laughs> nice transition. Nice. Hey, so we do but, have okay, a... So, go, but go one last point that's thought. coming to, just to tie in with the book that we're reading and the discussion we're having is that a lot of people on the Facebook page said that they were reading this book as a family read aloud. And I think mm -hmm. that's a perfect example. Um, they And they would list the ages of their children and they would say everyone was laughing and enjoying it, even yeah. though you know, the seven-year-old didn't get the literary illusions and the vocabulary and the 10-year-old you know, only got a little bit more. But there was a charm, there was a rhythm, there was a delightfulness and a humor that came across that everyone found something to love in it. And yeah. again, that just means, you know, have trust, like David said, have trust in the literature, have trust in the art, have trust in what we're doing. Um, yeah, this is, this is not tables to memorize and facts and figures. This is an art that you're helping your children learn how to experience. And as they grow, they'll experience it deeper and deeper and deeper. So and that's one, one other point on that, before we go to Gussie Finknoddle, I am as we've talked about on the show, I'm staying with my friends, the Scriveners, building a cottage in on their on their land. Wait, hold um, on, hold on. How do you spell their last name? S C R I V N E R. Like not Scrivener, scrib, not like, Scribner, like, like Bartleby. Bartle okay, not yeah. like Bartleby. 
That would Andrew have been fun. is a carpenter. The backyard, especially since we've been working on this cottage, is a litter of carpentry tools. I mean, every sort of cutting mechanism, every form of chisel, every sort of driving mechanism you can imagine. And so there are four kids, the son of a carpenter, they're so much handier with those tools than I was having had, like my dad, you know, was had some basic capabilities, but nothing like Andrew. Andrew can just build anything. And it's similar. His kids are so much handier with a chisel. They could drive a nail, even though their forearms don't have like the strength for it. They still have a much greater ability to drive a nail than I did at their age. Cause it's just, it's just around them all the time. It's just part of the tools of their upbringing. And so it's the same thing with the literary life. If you're just reading books and you're using, you know, kind of vocabulary that stretches them, they're just going to be, they're going to have a greater facility without ever really a trying, just by being kind of in the neighborhood of these terms and this literature and these words. That's exactly right. And also the fear level is such a huge difference. And I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about, Tim. When you have a student who's 16, 17, 18, encountering the great books for the first time, it's through their first experience in right. literature. That is a very different student than when I get somebody who came out of some, you know, Charlotte Mason, they've been read out loud to since the day they were born scenario. Like, yeah. oh, the things I can do with that kid because yeah, their comfort right. level, they're just immersed in the language. And it's, it's amazing. They don't have, you don't have this insurmountable. I ta- I've been talking a lot to parents and schools about this lately because I've been doing a lot of consulting work on designing K through 12 literature programs. And that's one of the themes I keep harping on is these elementary selections are so important because you don't want this huge leap between eighth grade and ninth grade, right? You don't want to go from reading nothing but, you know, junior high level historical fiction and now boom, let's read the Iliad. Yeah. That is that's a huge leap. Mm-hmm. Like, who's, who can do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we wouldn't really do that in any other, anything else, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't. Right. Uh, so like here's you your basic math facts, one. calculus. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, you know, you now right. know how to draw, you know, you can, you can trace, you can trace like out of a coloring book and color it in. And now, now like start doing all that from memory. I mean, even something as like simple as that, we don't ask them to do like there's stages, there's steps, there's, we teach them principles of an art so that they can take it to the next level. Is there any significance, Wendy Lakehurst wants to know, to indiscriminately breaking the items on the mantle and perhaps the painting also? Dying, the dying of the aristocracy, the meaninglessness and abundance of the baubles they acquire. Um, and then there's some conversation going on about that. So what do you think about that? Is, there, is he saying anything there or is it just a humorous sort of thing? that Woodhouse That's a great on? question. I hadn't thought about it before, but uh, I think you could certainly make the case that they're reckless people, aren't they? And they're, they're supposed to be holding this tradition. They're pretty reckless about it. Yeah. So they're, um, in other words, they are, it's, it's indicative of something true about them. Even right. if Woodhouse is not trying to say this is metaphor for yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I don't suspect anything heavy handed like that, but it, it, it's a, it's a, an action consistent with their characters, right? Like people who struggle financially, like we'll, we'll even contrast that to, uh, um, Howard Zinn, right. When, when he, um, smashes the picture frame, it's like a big deal to him. Cause he doesn't yeah, have any right. Money, right. Right. Uh, but the, they're so flippant with valuable things and 
smashing it up is not, that's nothing to them. They haven't had to work for any of this. So they're not very good stewards of the things that are being passed down to them. Also, it's funny. It is funny. It's like going back. It's like becomes that recurring joke. It's that bit you keep coming back to or that line that keeps getting repeated in a, in a good movie or something. It's yeah, like, I think it creates like a tempo and a, and a, and a and like an energy. That, yeah, that was really hilarious. Everybody coming into his room and smashing it up. <laughs> uh, Tim, go ahead. The, the depth of the symbol, I think, is um, analogous to the depth of the story. This is a de- very deliberately light story. So any sort of symbolism within the story, I think, is light. It's not going to burrow down really deep, whereas in something like Ibsen's Wild Duck, a very deep, nuanced, you know, serious, so much happening underneath the surface. There's an actual wild duck within the narrative. And the meaning of that is goes all the way to the bottom of the narrative. Whereas this is, I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's, it's a meaningless tale, not by any means, but it's, it's fun. It's playful. And I think the, the symbolism within is not intended to go any deeper than the narrative. Okay, well, let's call it a day. We've got through some of those questions. I'm going to give you each chance to offer some final thoughts. Um, we've said it before, but uh, this is the end of our conversation on the Code of the Woosters, and then we will be jumping into Hannah Coulter next week. Um, we're going to read part one of Hannah Coulter for next week. Um, so be prepared for that. Um, and that will be That's exciting. What, May 18th, I believe. Um, was when that'll that'll air um, or run or whatever is the yeah. right, word, right word for a podcast. So before we before we head off, we stop our conversation on this book and we go on Hannah Coulter. I'm going to give you each a chance, as usual, to just offer a final thought. Angeline, I will let you go first on that. So a final thought on the Code of the Boosters, Woodhouse in general. Um, okay, um, I appreciated that someone put a link on the Facebook page. Uh, it was uh, about Douglas Adams and that he was very influenced by P.G. Woodhouse. Oh, no kidding. I, I had never thought of that, but it made total sense. And um, he, that he said when people ask him, are you trying to be a funny writer? His response is something like, oh, no, I'm trying to be much more than that. I'm trying to write like P.G. Woodhouse, <laughs> which was great because I love Douglas Adams. And when I thought about it, I was like, oh, the rhythm and the sort of light satire. I, I can totally see that. You're talking, for those who don't know, the Hitchhiker Guide of the Galaxy series, right? Yes, yes. And I, well, I also read his others, The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul and their detective <laughs> stories. I know. Uh, oh, I love Douglas Adams. I've read a lot of Douglas Adams. I really enjoy him. I, my physics teacher in high school, my senior year, was a huge, is a huge Douglas Adams fan and got me reading some of his stuff. So that, that I uh, still thank him for that to this day. Sam, David, my, I want to offer a, an apology to the person who asked the question about what percentage of the illusions should I get? I feel like I was kind of careless with that. Like, that's a, actually a great question. Um, and I actually, and I did ask myself, I was like, I don't think I'm getting enough of these illusions. I wish I got more. Um, I just don't know. It would be hard. I, I was overly flippant in my response it's a really good question i don't feel like i have a capability of just evaluating without some sort of uh concordant concordance uh commentary how much of it i'm missing right right yeah, yeah I, I hope felt, that I our con- sorry go ahead 
I feel the, I feel the same way. And so I guess if, if the, if the question really is, you know, how do I approach this as a reader? I would suggest this, that, um, I, I feel this way about PG Woodhouse. I feel this way about Milton. Um, uh, you know, all, all of these guys that the more I read, the more I get, and then I mm. get excited because I can see that I'm getting more. So I don't have a percentage, but I know that I'm continuing to learn more because I get more references and that's super exciting. Mm-hmm. The last yeah, I hope- time I read through Paradise Lost, I hardly had to look at the annotated notes at all, y'all, and I was so geeked out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you read it enough times. Yes, yeah, so, and, and now I've read the back stuff. Like I've read the Aeneid enough times that I caught all the Aeneid references. Yeah, and, right. And the Chaucer it references. It takes experience and time, and like participating in that tradition for it all to sort of become one with you, <laughs> to become one with it, so to speak. And I, yeah, I do. To your point, Tim, I. Um, you mentioned you want to apologize to that person. I certainly hope that our, our answer to that didn't, it went a little far afield from the specific question, but I hope that it um, was respectful of the question. Cause I think we yeah, sympathize, yeah. we sympathize with the, the definitely. Sort of, it was a good question. Feeling. We probably yeah. responded like we did. Cause we all felt like idiots to admit on the air. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm getting like a half a percent and then I feel really good about that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think the point is that we don't get that many and that's not necessarily the worst thing. Um, All right. So is that it? Is that your final thoughts for both of you? That's it for me. All right. Well, uh, thanks for... That's it. Loved it. It was so much fun to read that again. Thanks for doing Woodhouse. Um, Tim, maybe we'll convince you one day to do another one. Uh, (laughs) um, For uh, Angelina Sanford and for Tim McIntosh and for all of us here at Cersei, thanks so much for listening to Close Reads. Uh, As always, thank you for supporting um, the show through Patreon if you've been doing that. And thank you for uh, continuing to participate in the conversation over on our Facebook group. And if you are not a part of that, we invite you to do so. You can find uh, Close Reads by searching Close Reads in the Facebook search bar. Um, and we will be sure to approve you if you request to become a part of that group. We'd love to get to know you a little bit over there. Um, Thanks again for listening. We will talk to you next week with Hannah Coulter. This has been another episode of Close Reads. Close Reads.